Hola! We have received a request from a mysterious listener in New Zealand. Which is incredible. <laughs> to cover the Malbray siblings. And although it's doubtful, we're purposefully omitting a mysterious listener in New Zealand. Name in case the Malbrays find this podcast and want to start trouble. We don't have enough followers for that to realistically happen. But we also don't have enough funds to defend you in court. So thank you so much for your request. But we will not be uh, disclosing your name. The Malbrays are a trio of business running siblings that operate in one of the most ruthless businesses in the entire world. They built their company from scratch and apparently own it outright. You may be anticipating that we're talking about oil or investment banking or real estate, and they dabble in real estate, but where the Mowbrays got their name was in the toy business, particularly in the plastic toy business. And we aren't kidding when we say this business is rough. It is a brutal business. Absolutely. Yeah. Firstly, the toy industry at large is the most plastic-intensive industry in the world. Secondly, they aren't exactly easy to assemble, and typically you have some pretty significant manual labor at the offset, which is often pretty darn expensive. We'll get to that. But after the toys are put together, they go into a single-use plastic container, and then they're shipped all over the world, where... They're sold, and it's estimated that 80% of them wind up in man-made landfills or natural landfills like, you know, the ocean. All of this is a bummer, and it doesn't get terribly pleasant elsewhere in the toy business. Trends in the toy industry move very, very quickly. So beyond the environmental impact and the human cost, toy companies have to invent new products like every six months, basically, to stay relevant. For this, you can invent new things constantly which is hard. You can release a movie about your toys, which is becoming more and more common. <laughs> kind and of I the thing. It. <laughs> yeah. It's the worst shit ever. It's ruining movies. <laughs> and it's really expensive. Yeah. Or you can acquire toy ideas from those around you, which can be expensive as well, usually. Yeah, this is like Shein, but more pollution. All of the problems with Shein, except with a lot more plastic, and the products are being advertised aggressively to, to children. To children. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you've not heard of the Malbrays, nope. we suspect, and that's by design. There are three of them. It's Nick is the youngest, Yep. Anna is the middle child, and Matt is the oldest. And... To quote Anna, the Malbray in the middle, being Kiwis, we are quite humble. That's the only impression I'm going to do. That's our quote. The three still actually share a house to this day. It's a modest 40,000 square foot home that the three siblings bought for just over $30 million. So, pause here. They had $30 million to spend, and they chose to all live together. Yeah. That's, I love my siblings. A lot. But if they were like, hey, do you want to spend $15 million on like two houses and live in the same town? Or do you want to spend $30 million and live in the same house? That would be a really easy decision. Very easy. <laughs> that, would be a, that would be a very, very easy. <laughs> two and a Half Men was a bad show. Oh, yes. Yes. Think about how much worse it would be if the underlying plot was two brothers that chose to live together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
they're spending their money however they want to spend it. In a 60-minute interview featuring just Nick and Anna, Matt is always behind the scenes. Yes. The two are shown driving around in expensive sports cars and lounging in extraordinarily expensive parts of Hong Kong. The real reason you've never heard of the Malbrays is that information online about this family is incredibly scarce. Which made our job tough. Liam. It was tough, y'all. Join us here. We are going to attempt to tie the pieces together to tell the story of how the Malbrays came to be mm-hmm. and how they built an empire. And while we're at it, We'll be keeping our eyes peeled to see if these Kiwis wind up on crutches. Crutches for the uninitiated is our PR torture chest acronym. A C stands for consumer harm. R stands for rich parents. U stands for union suppression and employee abuse. T stands for tax avoidance. The second C stands for child labor allegations. The H stands for harassment allegations. The E, egregious behavior after hours. The S for slap suits and journalist suppression. I'm Money Mike. And I'm Rad Bill. So, kick things off, credit where credit's due. The Malbrays are a good-looking family. Dude, they're hot. They're hot. There's some hot people. Even the back office dude, Matt, is great-looking. It's so frustrating because, like, they do these speeches for, like, business and shit, and you're like, you're way too good-looking to be in business. You're too good-looking for this shit. Why do you get everything? Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, the patriarch of the family, Harry Malbray, looks more like a farmer, though. He was born and bred in Hamilton, New Zealand and completed a Bachelor's of Science degree at Waikato University. I'm probably mispronouncing that. (laughs) He distracted himself during college by buying and working on cars and motorcycles and graduated debt-free. That son of a bitch. All right, and record scratch. (laughs) Right? We really want to do more digging here, but we kind of need to stay focused. For the time being... We'll give Dad the benefit of the doubt. We'll say he was an ambitious self-starter, pulling himself up by his own bootstraps. And when he graduated college, he had a bunch of motorcycles and a Mark II Jaguar that he worked hard for and earned and bought with his own money. Presumably by bleeding, sweating, and crying, whatever else. But Dad gets a job at a paper mill first before establishing a pine plantation and buying an old farm. Next, he founded an engineering and consulting company that operated in the pulp and paper industry. We're thinking that this is where a majority of the money came from. A lot of passive stuff probably came from the farm. The same year that his sons founded Zuru, like 2003, Harry and his wife purchased the Matanji Dairy Factory. Definitely botching that as well. Mm. This is a considerably sized property. It houses like 28 businesses today. Jesus. They've made aggressive efforts on the restoration front. Classic old rich people shit. Well, I mean, one of their businesses is a plantation. So, I mean, it really does have all of the markings of uh, rich white people. (laughs) They dabble in a lot of the rich old white people shit. Which is interesting because, like, we're from the southern U.S. And plantation has a distinctive connotation here yeah historians hate talking about it (laughs) we all know what's going on and it sounds like even on the other side of the world rich white people are plantationing just as hard in 1981 
Harry and his wife, Linda, decided to do what couples did back then instead of getting a dog and gave birth to their first child, Yuck. Matt Mowbray. Ick, right? <laughs> two, two years later, they decided to get another one and they welcomed Anna and then they welcomed Nick Mowbray two years after that. They've got a full litter at this point. <laughs> We look for some insight into what life looked like in the Mowbray household in those early years. And in an early interview with Simon Bridges on the Generally Famous podcast in 2022, Nick Mowbray said the following. <clears throat> I remember we used to have ice block eating competitions and you had to try and eat your ice block the slowest. Dad was always pushing us to do things from a pretty young age. He kind of drilled into us almost that when you're younger, that's the time to have a crack at something yourself, he says. If you just start and work really hard at that, you'll eventually crack it. Important question here. What is an ice block eating contest? Because if that is something that normal people are doing in New Zealand, please send me an email to explain because it sounds like something that should be taking place in a fucking gulag. It like, sounds like torture. Anything that you have to do the slowest, it's torture. Wall sits, torture. Eating a popsicle for a long time, you're going down. Yeah. So I have a working theory on what this is, what ice blocks okay. are. And what's funny about this situation is we're having to look at a few little pieces of data and go, interesting. I guess all people from New Zealand do this. Yeah, but is that what stereotyping is? Right? Oh, no. Totally. That's absolutely what we're doing here. But I looked up ice block eating contests, mm -hmm. expecting to find some results from New Zealand, and I only found one result that actually references ice blocks. It was a radio show in New Zealand, and I think ice blocks are what people in New Zealand call popsicles. That's nightmarish. We have a better word for it. Pop <laughs> popsicle's a good word. And on this radio show, they had two guys come on and see who could eat the most popsicles in a fixed period of time. Which looked... Grueling. Somehow worse. Yeah. That just makes my head hurt because of the obvious brain freeze implications. Brain freezes are amongst the most painful things that I experience on a daily. Like, brain freezes and paper cuts are just the torture of middle America. Brain freezes are the most painful, continually self-inflicted experience <laughs> I ever encounter, ever. Yeah. And I do it to myself constantly. If I have a popsicle or an ice block... I am getting a brain freeze, <laughs> yeah. guaranteed. Oh, every time, because I don't have any fucking self-control. But anyway, back to our story. Yeah. So when they weren't eating ice blocks, the children were attending St. Peter's School, which is a pretty exclusive private school that serves as further evidence that this is a wealthy family. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yep. When Matt was 10, his dad helped him make a model hot air balloon out of a Coke can and a plastic bag. The model won a handful of science fairs and competitions, and young Matt and Nick began selling these model hot air balloons door to door. When Matt was 19, he did the thing that only rich people do, and he dropped out of college to start a business. <laughs> he then opened a small factory on family land, and Nick dropped out of college at 18 to join him. I've been telling this exact story for like a year now. Yep. And I don't know why it's only just now setting in. Dropping out of college to start a business carries intrigue and implies grit for a few closely related reasons. The first, 
is that it suggests that the person realized that these foolish professors couldn't teach them a thing. Everything they knew and needed was already in their lap, ready to go. Mm. Is that a reference to their crotch? Maybe. (laughs) The second reason is that it implies that they're walking away from all of the opportunities that college affords a person for an opportunity that they think is bigger. Yes. Yeah. Also interesting about this story, which is this is PR fodder right here. I don't know if this is on Zuru's website, but this is the story that these siblings want you to hear. And it's interesting because it sounds like innovation was the instigator of them going into this business, which I won't spoil right now why that's kind of ironic, but we'll cover it here in not too long. But back to Rad Bill's point, college affords you the opportunity to build your credibility so you have the tools and potential for a shot at meeting someone like Nick or Matt's dad. But for them, opportunity is endogenous, not exogenous. Opportunity is waiting at home. It just finished making its signature chili, and it wants to rewatch Bourne movies. Matt and Nick don't know a thing more than any professor, or most students that go to the school they dropped out of, but they have the most important connections that they'll need in their pre-existing social circle. They kiss it on the lips before they go to bed each night, even though they're a little too old for <laughs> They shower with it at a questionable age. <laughs> Allegedly. No, that, no, that, that didn't happen. That <laughs> didn't happen. So they did what is the smart thing to do when you're dealt this hand of cards, and that's ask daddy for a loan. Yep, that's exactly what they did. They got a $20,000 loan from dad. Whether or not their dad came from money, which we are certain he did. Yeah. We can at least agree that dad knows how to invest, right? Like, with this in mind, let's turn our attention to the quote-unquote loan that this businessman underwrote here. Two kids who just dropped out of college want to go to the Hong Kong area of China to start a business. Pretty cutthroat business? You betcha. It's the toy business. It's apparently cutthroat as shit. Is establishing a toy manufacturing operation in China to cut cost a new idea? No. (laughs) China has been the world's largest toy manufacturer since 1993. Wow, I should know that. Yeah. Do these kids have any experience? Aside from selling trash door to door? No, they do not. Do they know much about the business they're trying to establish? According to them, they knew Basically nothing. Do they have any knowledge of intellectual property legislation? They might have, but Nick dropped out of law school before he could have learned any of it. Do they speak Chinese? No. Have they read up on where they're headed? We don't think so. We'll back this up shortly. What their dad knows is that these two can rage eat popsicles, and one of them won a science fair over a decade ago. I mean... He has my vote. (laughs) He's more qualified than a lot of people who've gotten loans in Silicon Valley. Also, I just thought about the fact that they sold toys door to door. You know, you tend to sell toys door to door in the neighborhood that you live in as a kid, right? Like when I was doing that, I, I would sell like fucking 
Boy Scout popcorn door to door, which was the worst. Mm-hmm. Were they just like going around this super affluent New Zealand area, like, hey, yeah, some? T- <laughs> I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do <laughs> uh, like, <laughs> like, hey, I have some toys. Do you want some toys? And the neighbor next door who's some partner at some prestigious law firm was like, oh, it's the cute little Malbray siblings at the door with a wagon full of toys. Okay, we'll buy a couple. Oh, it's those cute red-haired kids with a wagon full of trash. Let's give them some money. <laughs> Long story short, this isn't a loan. This is a wealthy guy giving his kids play money. Every yep. time some guy says he's got started with a loan from his parents... From a PR standpoint, it's designed to conjure the idea of that guy presenting a business plan to their parents. Yep. That didn't happen here. This yep. is not a loan. It's it's a loan if you make it and you can afford to pay it back, and if you don't, it's a gift. Yeah, and their dad's not breaking any knees if they Ex- miss a payment. Exactly. He's not putting a lien on their fucking cars. <laughs> He's not calling the credit bureaus. Yeah, does he want the money back? Sure. And in theory, if his kids make it big, they'll they'll make it up to him somehow, but yeah. th- there's zero risk of them ever oh, having to pay this e- shit exactly. back. Exactly. If they're successful, it's a loan. If they're not successful, it's a gift. Yeah, so dad writes him a check for 20 grand. And as Nick tells it in an interview with CEO Magazine, which hails them as disruptors and <laughs> innovators, right? <laughs> we literally got on a plane to China and went to a little place called Shantou, where there are no other Westerners. <laughs> Is that flicking anything for you? The fact that the fact that they're from New Zealand, which geographically is not in the Western Hemisphere, yes, that is flicking something for me. <laughs> <laughs> flicking the old geography bean. Yeah. <laughs> Further, uh, money offhand. Where does most toy manufacturing happen in China? So, oh, and I'm gonna butcher these names. So Shantou is known as the capital of toys and gifts in China. And it has been host to the Shanghai International Toys and Gifts Fair, which is the third largest in all of China since 1999. They're going to the place where all the toys are made to make toys. This is no innovative step. What it sounds like is that they flew to China and marveled at the fact that there are no other white people in China. (laughs) Is that what happened here? Is that what they mean by Westerners? <laughs> I don't know. When you read that, what what's supposed to happen there, I think, well, is yeah. you're supposed to skim that line and go, they were the first ones there, but they weren't. I think Hasbro established their Chanteau plant in, like, 2001. The Malbrays are blazing no new trails here. Yep. They sleep in a bush the first night because they didn't know how expensive hotels were going to be, which credits more to the fact that they did no research before <laughs> getting here. Dude, sleep on a bench. This isn't the goddamn jungle. (laughs) This is an industrial province of China. As Nick quotes it, they slept in a bush and got eaten alive by mosquitoes. (laughs) They sound like conquistadors going to fucking, you know, the Mayan Empire. Like, there's not a Westerner around. It's like, homie, you are in industrial China. (laughs) There's more smog than Los Angeles. (laughs) (laughs) So soon they get an actual home. They upgrade. During this time, out of the bush. Out of the bush. They're moving quickly. Uh, during this time, Matt and Nick are living off of a dollar a day for some reason, and their apartment costs just $20 a month for some reason. And when it comes time to get established, they settle on the name Zuru. It's going to be a toy manufacturing company. 
So the Malbrays decide that the best way to pick up steam with this manufacturing operation of theirs is to find some companies that are already in the market with products and allegedly borrow the ideas and designs, allegedly. (laughs) The first two designs the Malbrays copied it, I'll say it. They copied them. Yeah, that's Nick's yeah, words, that's, not mine. Yeah, that's that's not an allegedly. That's what they did. <laughs> yeah, he admitted it in the Forbes article that we're citing for this bit here. They copied the designs. They copied a design for a money bank, which I'm assuming is a piggy bank of yeah. some sort, and a light-up Frisbee. They then took the products to the New York Toy Fair, where they were a big hit, and they sold the designs to a distributor. But the original creator of the light-up Frisbee figured this out, and took their asses to court where the case was ultimately settled. This rattled the Malbrays for a moment, and they faltered from their business model. They switched to a distribution-based approach and partnered with a company called Zing. They distributed little, like, helicopter-shaped boomerangs, according to our sources, and I have no idea what that actually (laughs) looks like. And also spinning discs. And they wouldn't venture into production again, until like 2005. Yeah, so let's review the stakes here. So our little trio just got sued for borrowing another design. So they don't feel like they can steal someone else's design anytime soon, but they also aren't going to fuck around and create something new. So what do they do? Well, they outsource innovation. So in order to bring something viable to market, Zuru paid a Chinese manufacturing group $1 million for the rights to a handheld soccer video game where users could play as David Beckham. And they secured a deal with Walmart, wherein Walmart would purchase $2.2 million of these little David Beckham devices for a total of $29 million. However, after production began, Walmart began getting cold feet and moved to cancel more than 80% of the order, which would have ruined the Malbrays. Yep. So Nick flew back and forth a handful of times and ultimately convinced Walmart to consummate a deal for just over 36% of the original order. And this order did not move. And this is life according to Money Mike here, but this was an objectively horrible idea. Yeah, when did FIFA come out? This was yeah. 2005. I feel like you could already play soccer games on, like, Dude, PlayStation. imagine asking for, like, the Game Boy that was out in 2005 for Christmas, opening it up, and figuring out that Mom got you David Beckham's Soccer Blast 2000. Thanks, Mom. This is like a Game Boy, except I can't play any other games besides the soccer one. And I can't even be different soccer players. So, as Money said, none of these things friggin' sold. And they were apparently blackballed by Walmart for a few years. I was blackballed by Walmart once, but that was for scanning a TV as a tomato in the self-checkout line. That's fucking killer, and I, I love didn't do that. that. I didn't do that. That was a joke. I always, I always uh, write a line here or there into Money Mike's stuff before recording, where I just have, have him me. admit to stealing, <laughs> yes. which I don't think he's ever done in you, his entire life. You have written me self-incriminating scripts every single fucking time. I just add a bullet into his notes. <laughs> and like, he always hey. hits it right here. <laughs> hey, money. By the way, remember that time that you stole shit? It's like, no! (laughs) I never did that, Brad Bill. (laughs) 
so uh, anyway, they get blackballed from Walmart, and they didn't mean to take Walmart for ten million dollars. But all said and done, I think that that's a good thing, and I think it's kind of it's yeah. cool. But you can do it once. You can get away with it once, and cool thing. I mean, if you're going to steal from anyone. Steal from the trillion dollar company. Yeah, yeah. Ten million dollars to keep you running from Walmart against their will in retrospect is kind of sweet. That can only buy so many TVs that I scanned as tomatoes, but anyway. (laughs) Allegedly. (laughs) No, I didn't do that. No, allegedly. (laughs) We both know what allegedly really means. (laughs) Well, I know what it means in this podcast. Anyway. So, speaking of theft... It's at this point that the Mowbrays experience a sort of return to form, as some would allege. X-Shot was first released in 2011. So X-Shot is going to be one of the few derivative products that we talk about that, as of right now, there's not an active war being waged in multiple courtrooms to litigate IP theft for. But it is interesting, and also elicits some interesting questions about the nature of the Mowbrays' business and whether it's beneficial for the markets as a whole. X-Shot is Zuru's bizarro, cheapo version of Hasbro's popular Nerf guns that have been the bane of the existence of mothers and fragile ancestral vases and pottery and (laughs) silverware for generations. I swear, every time my mom found one of those little foam darts in some dark recesses or in my dog's poop... (laughs) She looked up numbers for adoption agencies. (laughs) But anyway, like many of Zuru's other products, the main difference between X-Shot and Nerf is price. Yep. An argument could be made for quality, but really the difference here is price. There could definitely be an argument made for quality. But for most people, the the tangible difference here is price. Yeah. We were reading a review on Reddit that essentially just told the story of a mom walking her kids through a department store and the kids saying, hey mom, can I please have a Nerf gun so I can harass my siblings while you're trying to read a romance novel so sex with dad can remain remotely gratifying? (laughs) Not really. (laughs) The kid just wanted a Nerf gun. And mom says that Nerf guns are $60. So hell no. What about this X shot? It's only $20 or whatever it was. And the kid agrees and he's excited. And the X shot turns out to be a great buy that was as good, if not better than the more expensive Nerf gun. Yeah. And this opens an interesting can of worms because from Rad Bill's story, it would appear that the end result of Zuru ripping off Nerf is a customer at the end of the supply chain was able to purchase an equivalent product at a lower price, thus saving them money. This is capitalism in its purest form. Competition in the marketplace directly benefiting the consumer. X-Shot is able to make their gun at a lower price than Nerf and therefore deserves some market share. So what's the catch here? Looking at things on a broader scale, there are several externalities that need to be considered. The first is innovation. Like Rad said, Hasbro hasn't actively sued Zuru as of yet, and I'm definitely not going to bat for some sprawling corporate monster like Hasbro, but one of the theoretical reasons that their prices are higher than Zuru's prices is they had to spend money in creating the designs that Zuru allegedly stole. Allegedly. Allegedly. 
But if this model is acceptable, then companies would be far more incentivized to wait for somebody else to create something and then rip it off for a lower price. And there really wouldn't be a reason for anyone to create anything new. So Rad Bill, what's our solution here? And if this argument was about generics for a life-saving medicine instead of dart guns, would that affect our position? That's a very good question. <laughs> I'm getting you back for all these fucking <laughs> self-incriminations. I deserve it. I've been asking for this for a while. I don't know. <laughs> My gripe with the Malbrays and their approach is that they're taking something and making it cheaper by using cheaper materials and by paying people less money. Yes. That's the Malbray model. That's what Zuru does. They're in China, and that's not to say that other toy manufacturers aren't doing the same thing. Right. They pay people as little as possible so that they can keep the products affordable. If Zuru is only skimping on innovation here. So hold that thought. <laughs> Speaking of labor practices. Mm -hmm. So this isn't directly relevant because as Rad Bill said, most of the toy companies we're talking about have been making their products in shady sweatshops for decades in, in order to deliver their product at lower prices. And this creates a myriad of paradoxical problem. In order for us to get our iPhone at a lower price, we need to pay somebody less. And those people have to live in hellish conditions. How can we keep prices reasonable without exploitation? That's an extremely valid question again. <laughs> Money Mike rolling out the hits. Vindication. Brad Bill responding in kind with, I don't know, left and right. Here's a problem. iPhones are a thousand goddamn dollars now, and the only difference is that the screen's gotten bigger. Tangibly to us, the camera's gotten nicer. Yep. The screen's gotten bigger. Functionally, for me, that's kind of all that's changed. The data storage hasn't even changed that much. I think that a lot of the changes that have been highlighted by Apple to make us buy more iPhones are less functionally impactful, yeah. to your point. This uh, older iPhone does X task. 10 seconds slower than new iPhone. But to your point, functionally speaking, what's the difference? Yeah. Other than the fact that you change the operating system and you won't support my old iPhone 7. So now I have to get the iPhone, what, 15? That's sort of it. And to um, that end, if Apple's going in and making these products and treating people miserably, yep. and the products aren't changing that much, especially lately, if we're going to stick with the system that we have now, something like Zuru is sort of the solution. The dream scenario would be that they come in, treat people better, yeah. pay people a little bit more, operate on lower margins and lower executive pay, and deliver a product that is just as good and a little bit cheaper to keep these folks honest and force innovation. But realistically, what they're going to do is also treat their employees like shit and just take home a little less money. Which is kind of something that everybody does. Which brings me to the third question. So Macro 101 tells us 
that emerging markets will primarily devote their resources to imitating ideas that more developed markets invest resources into developing. And on paper, that's all fine and good. Everybody kind of gets the benefit of that intellectual property. But what we have to remember in our Zuru scenario is the Maubrays aren't citizens of a developing country. They're not Chinese. They're citizens of a developed country that are simply using the conditions in China for one directive, which is profit for themselves. But they're investing in things like factories and employing workers, which the conditions aren't good, but they are still jobs. Are they benefiting that developing country, China, in a way that is fair and advantageous, even though it isn't their goal to build up a more developing country? I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this too, actually. But they are not proportionally benefiting China in accordance with what they will take home. A ton of the defense for this kind of behavior is that these guys come in and they create jobs and they create wealth and they get their nut and then they go and do something else or they eventually leave and then all of the folks that worked for them now have the money to innovate and create industry on their own. They don't have that in this scenario. No. Zuru comes in gets their nut and leaves, and everyone is just as poor as they were when Zuru came in. That part of it comes down to policy decisions. Zuru should be paying more to China. They are operating in a free trade zone, and that's really where they're making their money. I think that the unfortunate part of modern-day manufacturing is it is predicated on inequality. In order to develop products for... Group A, you kind of have to mistreat Group B to keep the prices low enough for Group A. And I think that there needs to be a scenario where everybody gets a shot at a comfortable life. Rising tide raises all boats. Once the opportunity to exploit that inequality no longer exists, well, then companies will be forced to figure out different ways to drive profits other than just exploiting people. But anyway, so we've established our take on releasing cheap toys that compete with established brands. Hasbro and Mattel are not the victims here. Nope. But a model where their workers make basically nothing or where the entire model is predicated on them underpaying workers to buy the most expensive house in New Zealand should not exist in that form. For sure. Just to get it out of the way, Zuru are allegedly copying Hot Wheels, which I'm glad about, and Lego, and I'm glad about that too. There's a secondhand market for Hot Wheels now, which is extremely depressing, and the price of Legos is ridiculous. It's high, dude. Yeah, and I'm not siding with Big Brick on this freaking issue. <laughs> when I was a kid, there were a ton of Lego sets that were under $10, and it was magical. Are there environmental issues and issues with how the company treats employees? We'll get to that oh, in yeah. the next episode. And spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we're covering that part in the next episode, and it's not pretty. Largely, when it comes to stealing from large companies or keeping them honest... We're kind of cool with that part. 
aside from all of the shortcomings, the ethical issues, and all of that, it's good that Hasbro and Mattel are getting undercut on a ton of this stuff. Sure, yeah. What we can't get behind is how Zuru got its first big break. This mirrors their initial ventures into the toy manufacturing business. As the story goes, their innovation team, quote-unquote, with the help of a man named Zhao Ping Lu, invented a product called Robofish in 2012. These were little robotic fish that would swim around in water or in little fish bowls, and they propelled Zuru to over $100 million in a year for the first time. <laughs> at the start of 2013, Innovation First, a much smaller company at this point, called them out because, allegedly, Lou was hired by Zuru from Innovation First and incorporated a ton of Innovation First's trade secrets into RoboFish. Allegedly. 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 <laughs> The judge ultimately sided with Zuru, and this is going to remind some of you of the Bill Gates episode as well. As the judge indicates, as the judge indicates, a key reason for this decision was the whole not my jurisdiction thing. Yeah. Which yeah. is yeah. hilarious. It's hilarious and frustrating. The yeah. act was committed outside of the US, so not that judge's Dude, problem. Some lawyer got fired. You must have been sitting in the courtroom like, alright, we're gonna sue these guys, we're gonna go to bat, it's gonna be a a long battle, but my lawyer told me that we have a case. Yeah. And then the judge goes, where'd this happen? Um, this happened in China. Why are we doing this again? <laughs> That's got to be the worst thing to hear as a lawyer. Period. <laughs> the, lawyer, the lawyer was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so, bunch of balloons, which allows you to fill a hundred water balloons at once, was another... Sick. Sick. Very cool idea. Yeah, like, as somebody who had to learn how to tie water balloons with these fat sausage fingers, a water balloon that I could easily tie, that would have a market. That I don't to have money to money. tie. Let me yeah. tell you, I still don't know how to tie water balloons. I'll pop them every time. Without bruises? Hard. I have big, stupid, incompetent fingers that don't tie water balloons at all. Same. Yep. Same. I just, I spray the kid in the face with water that I'm trying to tie the balloon for, and then I give up and just tell him to play with squirt guns. Yeah, I end up more wet than the person that I'm going to throw the water balloon more, at. More wet and more angry. <laughs> so, bunch of balloons came around, which allows you to fill a hundred water balloons at once. At first glance, what unfolded here looks similar to what happened with Robofish. The inventor that created Bunch of Balloons partnered with Zuru. And by the way, this is how Zuru's business works. They are not inventing any of this stuff. Yes, they are not innovators. Yes. Bunch of Balloons is invented, and the inventor partners with Zuru, who then finished this product, and it began getting promoted on YouTube several months before the inventor of a similar product, Zorbs began promoting their product. The company KBIDC bought the rights to Zorbs intellectual property after Zorbs filed for bankruptcy and then brought Zuru and the original inventor, a Mr. Moran, to court over it, alleging that bunch of balloons had stolen trade secrets from the inventor of Zorbs. Yeah. The court ruled in Zuru and Baran's favor. Again. Yes. On this one, as far as we can tell, 
it seems like that was the right decision based yeah. on the merits. Yeah, it, of the it, case. it was complex, and there's really no value in dissecting the legalese. Yeah, we can really go into it here. If you want to read more about this, we've included some additional reading on the case in our sources, and definitely check it out. Yeah, it's an interesting courtroom drama. Yep. So to sum it up, as far as we can tell, allegedly, there is literally no innovation happening anywhere in Zuru. We've seen some commentary suggesting that Anna and Nick have name-only titles, but in theory, Matt runs innovation. He's the third one. And almost everything they've created is just a copy of someone else's product. And it's interesting, speaking of commentary about these guys, because as Radbill said in the beginning of the episode, really hard to find stuff that isn't just PR fodder. But you go on Reddit into different New Zealand city Reddits and people fucking hate these siblings. Like Nick Mowbray, I think, was running for some sort of office. I think he's doing it right now. Yeah, and somebody was like, go out, you know, go out, support Nick Mowbray. And the comments were vicious. They were venomous, <laughs> yeah. And it, it seemed like there were good reason for them yeah. to be venomous. But they kept saying Nick, who's running for office, and his sister Anna have just name-only titles. Anna supposedly runs finances for the company, and in reality, I think that's probably where the innovation happens, if it happens anywhere. Yeah. This is a toy company that's owned outright by three siblings, and they're applauded for avoiding debt and sales of equity a ton. Oh, yeah. But that's a privilege that's reserved solely to those who come from money. Oh, yeah. If you don't have wealthy parents and your goal is to create a toy manufacturing company in a market where the big guys are already established... And create an innovation team the same place as the other companies have their innovation teams and undercut your competition on price, you will have to take on debt or sell equity. You will need money. You have to have money going in. Yeah. You just have to. Yep. And the fact that they haven't had to do either of these things is the sole reason that they're billionaires. They own it outright and the company is a $3 billion company. Yeah. And there's three of them. Like, a $3 billion publicly traded company isn't a big company. Yeah. But a $3 billion privately owned company, that matters. Yep. The next episode is going to focus on the trio's clumsy foray into everything else. Nick yep. Nick Mowbray has gotten full-on Elon Musk disease. His Twitter, or his x.com profile, is poisonous it's terrible <laughs> consuming will make you sick <laughs> we hate it we're going to cover the rest of the crutches yes stuff in the next episode and there is a lot yes. so please tune in i know for a lot of you these are new names but you'll have a good time it's gonna be awesome thanks so much for listening we love you all check us out on reddit and on youtube where we're trying to create a presence Email us. We've uploaded one YouTube video for the Jordan Belfort episode, and that's it. And we need to do the rest, and we will. We love you, and goodbye. goodbye.